0: You may notice that the children are um, going to be in here this morning. Um, If you weren't here on Wednesday night, um, then you might be a little surprised at that. But we are now moving, because of the age of the majority of our children, uh, we're moving uh, children's church. Instead of having children's church on Sunday night or Sunday morning, we're we're going to basically begin a Vibrant Wednesday program. So our leaders won't have to miss on Sunday morning. Now, now they'll be uh, they'll be taking turns on Wednesday nights and developing a more established, more robust Wednesday night children's program, which uh, I really like. And my, I, I sort of some churches have different philosophies on how they do children's church. Uh, some will have children's church all the way up until fifth grade. I've seen some of them even have junior high children's church, um, and some of them don't have it at all. Um, I personally am of the the feeling that if a kid can uh, sit in the classroom all day long and listen to the teacher or pretend to listen to the teacher or whatnot, that they can probably sit and listen to uh, a, uh, sing some songs with their family and listen to the pastor somewhat, even as they color or whatnot, whatnot. because the kids, they, they, even though they may not look like they're watching, they are watching how we worship. And so we want to teach them how to worship. So just FYI, if you look bored during worship or not singing during worship or you're playing on your phone during worship and stuff like that, we're teaching our kids that too. So um, it goes both ways. Uh, so, but I have, I have no fear. I know that uh, you all are very attentive and I'm thankful for that. This morning we're going to be in Revelation chapter 15 and the message this morning is entitled The Song of the Saints. Uh, this is sort of a two-part message. Uh, it goes, uh, chapter 15 goes right along with chapter 16, and so we're going to be taking the first, uh, the first half of this series in chapter 15 today, uh, which we're going to be talking more about the saints, and then next week we're going to be talking more about the lost uh, and the judgment of God upon the lost, upon unbelievers. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, this sermon series, I worked it out over the break is going to conclude on February 27th. And so our final sermon in Revelation, Lord willing, and the creek doesn't rise in Kentucky, you got to add that in there, right? Um, then uh, we will be finalizing our uh, sermon series in Revelation on the 27th. And so I'm excited about that. I'm excited because I love the conclusion of Revelation. Um, and I'm excited about moving on to something else. I, I'm always ready to start preaching something else um, as well. So um I'm looking forward to that. So, the Song of the Saints. Let's begin just talking a little bit about war and peace. In 1870, Congress established July 4th as Independence Day, and this day marked, was marked by celebrations and is marked by celebrations with food, flags, festivities, the national anthem, and of course, lots of fireworks. And I know that physicians and nurses and emergency rooms are always excited about New Year's Eve and 4th of July, that usually on 4th of July, uh, there are going to be digits lost. Eyes put out, something like, I imagine that Dan would have loved the 4th of July as an EMT, just ready to go, right? Right. There might be a head rolling or something. That's right, that's right. So, um, that, But that kind of thing is happening, right? And so as we see fireworks bursting in the air, we think of the national anthem and the line that says, and the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. And so this celebrates, if you will, uh, the American Revolution when these uh, wily colonists, these 13 colonies, got together and said, We're not going to be a part of your tyranny anymore, England. We're going to separate. We're going to become our own country. And so we see that this is a celebration of how these misfits, if you will, took on a king and they won. It's a celebration of triumph and victory. But at the same time, while there is a victor, there is also those who are defeated, right? And basically, let's put it this way. England doesn't celebrate the 4th of July, okay? To them, the 4th of July is... It's just the 4th of July, right? It's sort of like me when somebody says, How are you going to celebrate New Year's Eve? I celebrate it like I do any other day of the week. I usually go to bed early uh, because it just doesn't matter that much to me, right? Now, on the 4th of July is different. I celebrate the 4th of July. Now, in today's passage, we're going to see a celebration. We're going to see how the saints celebrate their victory over sin and death through the, through the work of the cross. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that, that the salvation of the saints and the celebration that ensues is intimately tied to the wrath of God. You don't have salvation without God's judgment. Those two are intimately tied together. And so those, that wrath of God is going to be poured out on unbelievers those who have rejected Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Or as the famous philosopher Ricky Bobby said in Talladega Nights, if you're not first, you're last. Now in the scope of salvation and judgment, there is no second place. There is no second place. God does not give out participation trophies. The saints will sing, the lost will suffer, and through it all, God is righteous in all of His ways, and we're going to look at that. How is, a, how is a good and kind God justified in pouring out an unimaginable wrath upon people who have not believed in Him? So let's pray, and then we're going to dive right into Revelation 15. Father, we thank You for Your salvation. We thank You for the grace that uh, elicits faith as a gift for us, Lord, not something that we have earned, but we have been given freely, Lord, through the shed blood of Christ. And I pray that as believers that we will make use of our faith, that we will apply our faith and we will celebrate our faith. We will celebrate the salvation that we have won through Christ. And Lord, we are grateful for that. And at the same time, Father, we understand that judgment, that wrath, that Uh, punishment comes along uh, with this in in light of the fact that not everyone will believe. Not everyone will turn their life over to Christ. Not everyone will call Jesus Lord until they are forced to one day on their knees. So, Father, I pray that we would understand this text, the text from this week and next week, and we're able to apply it and use it and uh, learn from it and most of all, Father, that it would cause us to worship. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Songs of Moses and the Lamb, Revelation fifteen, one through 2. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and all those those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. John shares this striking vision that he has of heaven and the throne room and of the sanctuary of God where the final judgments of God are being poured out on the world by angels and he calls them great and amazing. And here in a little bit, we're going to read a song here in the second part of this first point. And he's going to keep on saying great and amazing are your ways, are your deeds. And I love that phrase. Um, But one of the things I just want to bring to your mind, this is actually tangential to the sermon. It's not something I've written down, but it just kind of occurs to me. It says, the seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last for with them, the wrath of God is finished. And the first thing that comes to mind is the fact that how the unbelievers and those who are enduring the wrath of God must be yearning for the end of God's wrath on them. But what they may not understand is that the wrath of God in this great tribulation is not finished. It's just that the great tribulation is finished, but they will endure the wrath of God for eternity, for all of eternity. I think of, I, I've, I've been blessed in my life um, in almost 43 years that I've not had too many medical issues, uh, but I have had some procedures, and uh, a couple of them uh, were quite painful, and I had to be awake for those procedures, and even with certain medications to numb the pain, it was still very uncomfortable, and the recuperation was afterwards, and I remember one such procedure that I was awake and the doctor was performing. It involved a very long needle going into my shoulder right before an MRI, right into the joint. And I remember, even even though they had given me medication for that, I remember asking the doctor, because there was a lot of pressure in my arm, I said, are you almost done? And he says, yes, we are almost finished folks, that almost being finished could have felt like eternity. It just seemed to go and go and go. I'm sure it's very similar to the same pain that women have when they're giving birth. Anyway, um, I, I jest. I jest. All right. Now, John shares this striking vision of heaven, where the final judgments of God are being poured out on the world by angels. And I want you to remember that we opened Revelation, or at least in the chapter, in cha- beginning in chapter four, uh, we opened the tribulation with the seven seals, followed by the seven trumpets. And now what we're going to see are these seven bowls that are carrying these last seven plagues uh, to the unbelievers. Now, while the seals and the trumpets and the bowl. All depict. They all depict the great tribulation. That I will remind you, based on the way that we're reading this and understanding this, that we are in right now. The great tribulation begins with the resurrection of Christ and ends with His second coming. So it's the it's bookended by Jesus. All right. So right now we are enduring this great tribulation. But the bowls are different. The seven bowls are different. These seven bowls are pushed towards the end of the great tribulation, it seems. It seems that they are marked by the end of this great tribulation. Now, John also sees what appears to be a sea of glass that is on fire. It says, And I saw in verse 2, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its names standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hand. And so you have the sea of glass and it's on fire. Now in the text, it says the, uh, it says, "And those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its names standing beside the sea." Now that's the way your version will, will, will read or interpret or translate that text. That these believers, these are individuals who have not accepted the number of the beast. These are individuals who are saved, who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. These are individuals who are standing beside the sea of class. The, the only, I want to make one little caveat, and it's a small caveat. And, and if you don't buy this, it's okay. It's not going to completely redirect our translation of the text. It is very likely that that word, beside, should be the word On. That they're standing on the sea of glass. Now, the same Greek word that is used for on also means beside. So, translators and many of them had to make that decision of what it means. But oftentimes, that word in a sentence similar to this would mean on. And it makes sense in the context. This sea of glass is most likely not literal. Okay, we've also often talked about the crystal sea. Or this sea of glass, this sea that is so pure and so clear um, that it's only right that it would be in heaven, right? But it's likely that that is not a literal sea. What he's probably envisioning is this gulf, this gulf, or this this, uh, vast expanse that separates the people from God, okay? So it's this vast expanse. It's clear. It's pure, it's holy, so it's like crystal. It's like crystal. and But it's also on fire, okay? It's brimming with judgment, sort of like crystal. Anyway, um, and so, but it's also fire, right? And so it represents God in both of those ways, pure and holy and beautiful, but also God's wrath and judgment are present there as well. But what is different is that these believers are not standing beside But they are allowed upon the sea of glass. It's almost as if they are able to approach God, not to be in his immediate presence yet, but they are able to approach him as these final judgments are ensuing. It's clear as glass, crystal, pure, but that fire denotes God's wrath. And what I want us to remember is this God is love. Don't forget that. God is love. But as C.S. Lewis would say, God is not tame. God is not tame. We dare not put God in a box. And when God says that He will judge the earth, that is not a suggestion, that is a promise. And that's going to matter here in a minute as the saints begin to sing, These saints are likely standing upon the sea. They have been given some, but not complete, access to God. And we also read that this is due to the fact that they have conquered the beast. Now, I want you to remember that, okay? It says here in this passage that they are able to stand upon this sea or beside the sea, getting ready to sing, because they have conquered the beast." They've conquered His image. They have not taken the number of the beast, meaning that they have not devoted themselves or committed themselves to anything other than Christ. Their devotion is to Christ. Now, this may seem like a small thing when I when, as I begin here, but I want you to realize that when the Scripture says that they have conquered, remember who actually did the conquering. We as believers do not conquer anything apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we are failures. Apart from Christ, we are lost. We are broken. The world talks about us picking ourselves up with our bootstraps. Folks, that doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. We are not victors outside of Christ. Everything that we have is because of Jesus, the beast here is symbolic of Satan's sin and evil in the world, and it's important to contrast these numerous self-help health books that we don't do the conquering. You know all those self-help books that we see, some of them written by so-called pastors that basically are encouraging, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like you, right? I mean, it allows you to like look in the mirror in the evening and say, I'm beautiful, I'm gonna. There's there are some workout tapes. Crystal and I were talking about the other day um, as she's working out to these videos, which is fantastic. Um, And one of the people there, if I can just pick on it, Crystal was telling me that in some of the videos, very few of them, but a few of them, she'll say, "Now say it with me. You're beautiful." Now it sounds like I'm being goofy here, but you know you get the idea, right? Well, here's the thing. What I really want to hear is I want somebody to say, "You're a wretch. You're evil." Outside of Christ, you are broken outside of Christ, right? You're not good enough outside of Christ. But because of Christ, we are victors. We don't do the conquering, God does. God goes before us. Listen to these verses one from Exodus 13 21. And Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. God rescues them, rescues them from the hands of the Egyptians, but he did not leave them. He rescued them, and then he went before them, leading them along their way. Folks, if God would have just left them on the other side of the Red Sea, they would have been destitute. They would have been dead. But he didn't. He led them. Isaiah 45, 2. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. That's what our God does. He goes before us. Deuteronomy 31, 8. Or Psalm, I'm sorry, Psalm 77, 20. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You led your people, not Moses and Aaron, Moses and Aaron were instruments of God. God was the one doing the leading. God was the one doing the leading. And then one of my favorites, Deuteronomy 31.8. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. As believers, this is our anthem. The Lord goes before us. We have no reason to fear. We have no reason to be anxious. I saw a really, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe somebody in here shared it on, on Facebook, on social media, but it basically says nowhere in Scripture does God say you need to be anxious now. Nowhere, I'm paraphrasing. Nowhere in Scripture does God say you need to be anxious. Nowhere in Scripture does God say you need to be worried now. What does He say? Do not fear. Do not be anxious. Why? Because He's going before us. So what are the saints doing out on this sea of glass? They're celebrating. They're singing. They're worshiping. You know, we've just made it through 2021, which everybody was hoping that was going to be better than 2020, and that's up for debate. That's for historians to decide, okay? And I saw a great meme that had this ocean rising, right? and the small wave in front was 2020. There was a bigger wave in back that was 2021. And behind that wave, Godzilla was coming up, which was 2022. I was like, Laura, I hope not. (laughs) But then on the first day of the year, I pinched my finger in a lazy Susan. I was like, bring on the next year. I just can't handle it anymore. Here's the thing. We're always enduring something. We're always enduring something, but the Lord is going before us, and it's cause for celebration. It's cause for singing. What does it say? Verses, through verses three and four. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, "Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the Nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy." All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Remember, this is the consummation of history, and the saints are singing this. All the nations will worship you. It doesn't say some, all right? It doesn't say a few. It doesn't just say the good ones. It doesn't say the industrialized ones. It doesn't say the enlightened ones. It says every nation will worship you. That is going to be a moment that is worthy of the saints singing about, when they see Every knee bowed, as Paul promised in Philippians, every knee will bow and claim that Christ is Lord. Many will do it in honor and exaltation of the Lord, and some of them will be forced to do it. The song of the Lamb is a fulfillment of the song of Moses. Moses sings twice, two songs, in Exodus and then in Deuteronomy. The first one is right after the Israelites are relieved from Egypt, and the last one is right before Moses dies. But in both of them, Moses is celebrating God's deliverance as well as God's judgment. God's deliverance of the people of Egypt and God's judgment upon the Egyptians. Or in the latter song, God's deliverance of the people, but then God's future judgment upon the people who do not turn to him, who reject him. Both songs depict the greatness of God and the judgment of God, and both proclaim God's sovereignty. In the Song of the Lamb, we, sing, we see this similar theme. Great and amazing are your deeds. That's what the people are singing on this sea of glass. Great and amazing are your deeds. That God is king of the nations. There is but one king. I, um, there are a lot of individuals, and I know, and I'm not going to name names, who in here, who really like watching the royals. They like watching the royals. When one of the royals get married, you all get up at like 3 in the morning to watch the wedding. Christy's nodding her head yes. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm asleep, <laughs> but during, I mean, we, they, they, it, it's kind of this pomp and circumstance, right? And it is historic. There's historic things happening. So we like seeing all the pomp and circumstance and all the, the people dressed in red with the big tall black hats and everything standing out there. You know, all this kind of stuff is going on and it's exciting, but it's interesting to think that one day all those crowns are going to be removed. Those crowns are temporary. The power is temporary. Because in the end, there is only one king. There is only one king. And the saints will sing of him. All the nations will worship you. Your righteous acts have been revealed. Your righteous acts have been revealed. The judgments of God will force every nation to acknowledge who is Lord. So these judgments that are occurring... All this wrath that God is pouring out on the nations will eventually culminate in all the nations bowing before Him. That's the point, is that these these judgments are going to force them either to turn to Christ for salvation or to endure the judgment of God. And I will say that in here is that you either turn your life over to Christ, trusting Him as Lord and Savior, or endure the wrath of God for all eternity. Everyone will fear God as He consummates history. It says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? What's the answer? None. There is not one person who will not Glorify the name of Christ, either in joy or in pain. Everyone will revere the Lord and give Him glory, even as they are judged for their sin. Now, finally, we should mention in this, la- in this first point, we should mention that the saints are praising God for His great and amazing deeds and His righteous acts. Okay? Okay? And these, of course, would include His grace and mercy towards the saints. They're celebrating for the grace and mercy that God has bestowed upon Him, that He has shielded them from the eternal ra- of His eternal wrath, that He has given them salvation. But they also include the plagues that are about to be poured out. The saints are singing about the wrath that God is getting ready to pour out. Okay, we'll see. She's she's on a sea of glass right now. All right. (laughs) That's going to be an awkward part in the podcast. We'll delete that part, okay? (laughs) God's mercy. Hear me now on this. God's mercy and His wrath are not divorced from one another. They are tied explicitly together. They are often demonstrated at the same time. Catch this. God had mercy on Lot even as he smites Sodom and Gomorrah. God saved the Israelites as he destroyed the Egyptians. He rescues the saints as he judges sinners. His mercy is only mercy if there is something for him to have mercy on and from, right? God is showing mercy on individuals while other people get the full weight of his wrath. But in all ways, in all of his ways, he is righteous and we praise him for that. In none of these ways does God sin. When the seals are broken when the trumpets blast, when the bowls of God's plagues are poured out, in none of those ways is God sinful. Uh, Liberal scholars, if you want to call them scholars, will at times try to say that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and judgment, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. And here's what I would say to that. One, you didn't read either testament very well. You read into it what you wanted to read into it. That's number one. Number two, you must have stopped at Jude in the New Testament because God's wrath is all over the pages of Revelation. And God does not sin in either case. The final point this morning, the wrath of God introduced. Revelation 15, 5-8. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls, seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So here we are introduced to the seven bowls of God's wrath, and I want to make a few observations. Number one, note that the angels, the plagues, the smoke, and all the commotion, that they are coming from the sanctuary of the witness, of the tent of witness. This tent represents the presence of God. That's what that tent has always represented. Represented that in the Old Testament as well. The tent of witness represents the presence of God. And this means that these judgments are being coordinated and sovereignly directed by God Himself, even as He delegates each plague to different angels. God... God is not like saying, "I don't want to touch this." I want you know you understand what I mean there. Like sometimes we see in movies, and even have seen seen in history, how some leaders and tyrants and dictators and kings and, and queens, in some cases, they will they don't want to get their hands dirty. Remember Pontius Pilate washing his hands of the blood of Christ, right? I don't want to get my hands dirty. This is on you. You all do the dirty work, so it doesn't end on me. That's not what God's doing here. This is coming straight from God. God is sovereignly ordaining these plagues to be poured out. And they are not evil, they are not bad in the sense of good and bad. They are simply holy. Vengeance and judgment is the Lord's. Number two, the wrath of God is being poured out on unbelievers. Those who reject Christ for their own glory, and just as a side note, this is the beginning of God's wrath on believers, not the end. I just want to remind you of that, okay? So this wrath that's being poured out, it's being poured out on unbelievers, on sinners. One day the tribulation, the great tribulation will end, and eternity will begin, and then unbelievers will endure the wrath of God, continually. And finally, the sanctuary is off limits to everyone until the final bowl is poured out. This implies that history is not complete until the tribulation is complete. Now, oftentimes, our parents, including myself, I'm really bad about this, will dole out punishment, and then 10 minutes later, they relent, right? You aren't getting, and and here's the way it works for me. You're not eating for a month. That's my punishment. Well, Toya will tell me that I'm not allowed to do that. Okay? I got to feed the kids. So then I relent. All right? But I relent. Like, I'll say, Jackson, you're not going anywhere for a week. And then, like, later on that evening, he's over at somebody's house. You know? I'm just not, I'm not a really good punisher. Okay? But when God says he's going to do something, he does it. And this tribulation doesn't end until these final plagues are poured out. If you reject God, you will receive the full weight of His wrath. So as I close, let me make two real important points. Number one is this. Is God mean? That's the way we would say it. Let me put it this way. Is God evil? Does oh, Good. All right. Very good, Malachi. He's not evil. But some would say that He is because of the wrath Like, why? how could God do this to innocent people? And even when I say that, I kind of laugh at myself by saying innocent people. That's right, Malachi. God's wrath is no joke. Why is God so furious, so destructive to unbelievers? And here's why. The degree of God's wrath, which is a result of His judgment, Is directly proportional to God's holiness and grace. It's direct the amount of his wrath is directly proportional to his grace and to his holiness. Mankind, as Malachi would say, does not deserve the goodness of God nor the salvation that comes from the cross of Jesus Christ. Not one of us deserve that. Not one of us deserve it. I I just I don't. I, I, it, it just causes my toes to curl when people say, well, I deserve something better. No, you deserve something worse. You just deserve something worse. Because outside of Christ, none of us are good. So to reject God's amazing grace is to accept God's equally terrifying wrath. If you are dying, yet you reject a life-saving treatment, then you receive what you have earned, death. Here is death laid out before you. Here is Christ who is life. He is not a lifeboat. He is life. Here's Christ. If you reject Christ, then you get what you deserve. If I go to the hospital and the doctor says, you're dying But this pill will save your life. This pill and only this pill will save your life. If I reject it, I can't then say, well, I don't deserve death. You earned it. You rejected the life-saving treatment. Christ is our life saver. Christ is offering His life to us Will you accept it? And the last point is this Is it appropriate to sing about God's judgment and wrath? Is it appropriate for all of us to sing about God's judgment and wrath? Folks, it is. It is appropriate. Just as individuals in the Revolution and the Civil War sang songs about victories in battle, we are singing songs about God's victory over sin. In addition, we are singing about how God has saved us from His wrath. You cannot sing about how God has saved us from His wrath if we don't point out the fact that God has wrath. So it is right to sing about it to say well I only want to sing about God's love I don't want to sing about God's wrath you have just you've you've torn God apart that's not the God of the Bible we have to sing about both we celebrate both because we understand that's the fullness of God singing, singing about being saved by grace but not from wrath misses a huge piece of the story It's called the good news because we are being saved from our sin. If there was nothing to be saved from, then what's the good news about, right? It ignores that there are consequences for sin and for rejecting Christ. By singing about God's wrath and judgment, we are demonstrating how amazing God's grace and mercy truly is. the song, and I think I've mentioned this before, uh, there's a song, In Christ Alone, that we've sung in here a few times. And I love the song. The words are amazing. It's a newer hymn is what it is. And it was, uh, there was a denomination, a more liberal denomination, that wanted to incorporate that song into their hymnal. But in the song, it talks about God's wrath. And they wanted to put, and by the way, this would have earned the authors of the song a lot of money by putting this in this hymnal. And the denomination who was developing the hymnal said, we'd like to include your song. We love the song, but there's this one part of this one verse that talks about God's wrath. And we'd like to remove that part because it's just not a nice sentiment. We'd like to remove the wrath of God from this song. And the authors of the song said, absolutely not. We have to sing about God's wrath because it's true. It's true. It's in the Bible, it's biblical in every way. And so that song is not in that denomination's hymnal, and the authors are okay with it. Here's the thing God is love. We're going to close here. God is love, God is mercy. God is gracious and kind. We should and we must celebrate those things. We should sing about those things. We should tout these things to the lost in hopes that they would believe. And I don't think that, I think the majority of evangelical churches are actually very good at that. If you look at most contemporary music out there today, uh, unfortunately, a lot of it it's hard to tell the difference between a Christian song and a love song that you might hear on, you know, 94.5 or something like that, all right, except for the occasional mention of the name Jesus. A lot of our contemporary music does a very good job of talking about God's love. It may not always be biblical how they talk about it, but they talk a lot about it. You don't hear a lot of music about God's wrath, which ties me back to the song that we sang this morning and though you slay me and though you ruin me and though you take from me those are not songs that you often that that song is probably not going to win grammy awards cuz most of us don't like singing about it but it's true because god is also not tame god is loving but he's also not tame God is not to be trifled with. We do not trifle with the God of the universe. Because God's wrath is real and so is hell. The judgment of sinners is real. And I want you to catch this. If God didn't want us to be warned about the consequences of sin and for us to share those consequences to sinners then why did He reveal them to us in the first place? Think about that. If some people say, stop talking about sin, just talk about God's love. Just talk about God's love, talk about how merciful He is, talk about gra- how gracious He is. Don't talk about sin, don't talk about God's wrath, don't talk about judgment. The blood of Jesus is child abuse, okay? That, that's an, that is actually an argument that has been made, Okay? don't talk about all that stuff. Keep it light. If God wanted us to keep it light, He wouldn't have included it in the Holy Scriptures in the first place. You have to talk about these things. And for a preacher or a pastor to exclude those things so that you all feel good and charged when you leave on a Sunday morning is failing to do the calling of a preacher. God is good, but He is not weak. And the God we worship is great and amazing in all of His ways. All of His deeds are great and amazing. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, Your whole Word, the whole truth. Father, we thank You For your righteousness, even that righteousness that is poured out in judgment, Lord. And as believers, we thank you for being saved from your wrath. Saved from our sin. I pray that we would honor you. Lord, we love you and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.